you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can grab one from the chair in front of you. And I encourage you to follow along with the words as I read them and as I reference them throughout the sermon. Psalm chapter 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? Oh, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, our desire this morning is that you would teach us how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. Help us as we hear your word to have hearts that are alert, attentive, interested. Move in our hearts by your spirit to reveal Christ and his beauty to us and show us how this relates to our lives, we pray. Amen. Perhaps many of you know that I have three small children, and with a house of three small children, it is amazing to see how quickly the toys and the books accumulate. That is perhaps mostly due to their grandparents, but we've decided that a child can have too many toys, but probably cannot have too many books. We have children's books everywhere, and we read them, most of them too. We read them. I noticed this morning there's a box of children's books in my closet. How did that get there, right? It's because they've been reading in the closet. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. And there's a number of books, children's books, that my wife and I can quote by heart. If you were able to wake me up in the middle of the night, which is not an easy thing to do, uh, you could ask me to quote Pajama Time, and I could do it cold. I don't, I don't need my eyes open. I don't need the first word. I can just go, right? I've got Pajama Time down. But we've made, we, well, we've learned, one of the things you learn as a parent is that there are certain books that are best read at night, you know, at bedtime, and some books that are better to be read during the day or, or even, you know, in the morning. Uh, for example, you do not want to make the mistake of reading The Barnyard Dance to my son, Roman, because while he is trying to go to bed, he will be dancing like a pig, Right? Who is dancing the barnyard dance? It's, it's much better to do something else. This week I made the mistake, <laughs> right? I forget this sometimes. I made the mistake of finishing off the book Treasure Island with my girls right before they went to bed. And, uh, you know, it's not, there's nothing quite like saying sweet dreams to your kids by reading a story of where a young boy is stabbed by a pirate with one wooden leg and then chased. Right by a man who sings constantly about the glories of rum. Instead, it would be better 
if you're a veteran dad, to read a more soothing book, like Goodnight Moon, right? Where you say goodnight to a bowl full of mush and a comb, right? And a, and a quiet old lady who happens to be a rabbit whispering, hush, right? Even my son's favorite bedtime story is how do dinosaurs say goodnight? It ends on a quiet and soothing note after the dinosaurs roar, right? Because everyone knows that a good dinosaur tucks in his tail, whispers goodnight. They give a big hug and give one kiss more. Goodnight, goodnight, little dinosaur, right? This morning, I'd like to ask the question, how should Christians go to bed? Now, I realize this question may surprise you, but I don't think it's an unreasonable question. I mean, we go to bed every day. Some of you went to bed about four minutes ago when this sermon began. I think it's a reasonable question to ask. How should a Christian prepare his heart to sleep? Some of you might understand what I'm talking about in a more tangible way. You've had problems in your life that are so heavy, so troublesome, so difficult that you have lost sleep. I remember the first night when Haley and I had learned that the child my wife had been carrying for 21 and a half weeks was dead. We didn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. I just, I couldn't put it down. I was exhausted but I couldn't steady my heart enough to go to bed. I don't think Haley slept for three nights. And we've all got problems, some big, some small. So how is it that a Christian can lay down and go to sleep in a world where so many bad things can happen? Well, believe it or not, Psalm chapter 4 is about this very subject. And so I invite you to go ahead and look back down at your text and take notice of how the psalm begins there in in verse 1. It appears that David is in a time of distress. His heart is in anguish. There is angst there, and he seeks relief. It's a psalm that, like many of them do, begins with trouble. It begins with clamor. Yet, just eight verses later, by the time we get to verse 8, All is well. Or at least there is enough peace for him to lay down and sleep in peace. How did he get there? How did he get to verse 8? What happened from the trouble in verse 1 between 1 through 7 to get to verse 8? Well, that's what I would like to share with you this morning. But as we begin, let me, if, if you would permit me to reflect a little bit on the nature of sleep. If you think about it, waking and sleeping is something that God has built into the fabric of our life. It's one of the ordained parts of the human experience. Just as God began the world with the rhythm of evening and morning the first day, so too he has made humans to be dependent upon sleep. Your life began asleep. And then when you're born, the early years, you sleep a lot. You depend on other people to meet your needs. They worry about your problems. And then gradually as you grow and you need less sleep, 
which those of you who care for others know is a good thing because for those of us who are caring for others, whether they're small children or teenagers or aging parents, we know we don't get as much sleep as we would like or need. But you never get beyond your need for sleep, do you? God has strangely wired us like that to basically shut down every 18 to 24 hours. No matter how strong or how self-sufficient or how smart or accomplished you are, you will never outgrow your need for sleep. Now, if you think about it, sleeping is really different than being awake, isn't it? During the daylight, we are in control. We can solve problems. We can make money. We can send interesting memes. We can think and tackle the problems of our life. We can get things done, but not so much while you're sleeping, right? At nighttime, we have to give up control of our lives. We give up the control of our jobs, our relationships, and even our thoughts for several hours. If you think about it, it's really quite pitiful how helpless and out of control we are while we're sleeping. Some of you (laughs) drool while you're sleeping, right? Something babies do. Some of you snore. Some of you may talk in your sleep or even walk in your sleep. When I was uh, 16, I worked at Chick-fil-A, and my best friend, uh, who spent the night with me most weekends, told me that one night he woke up in the middle of the night and found me with my head out of my second-story bathroom window saying, Hi, welcome to Chick-fil-A. My name is Nathan. How can I help you? That's before the it-was-my-pleasure days. But right, we do strange things in our sleep because we're not in control. We can't even control our thoughts. There's something about sleep where we are just not in control. So for the Christian, it seems very appropriate, especially in a world of trouble, that going to sleep be an act of faith, even an act of worship. It's a time for us to say to the Lord, God, I have got problems. I've got all sorts of problems in my life, but I am going to relinquish them to you. I'm going to trust you. Do you see why Christians for so many centuries have had a time of vespers, an evening time of prayer. It's a time to move from the anxiety of our days to the peace of sleep. Not just because our bodies demand it, but because we have a Heavenly Father who loves us and who's taking care of the world. This psalm shows David's faith, a faith that moves from anxiety to sleep. David in the psalm is in trouble. We're not told a lot of the details, but in verses 1 and 2, we can tell he's in trouble. Verse 2 makes me think that it's a relationship problem, some sort of social issue. Perhaps he was being falsely accused. People were lying about him, it seems. The men of verse 2, we know from looking at the text more closely, these were men of rank, men who were important, political figures and powerful men, and they were ruining his reputation, it seems. They were ruining his honor with lies. Now, we might say, well, hey, all right, that doesn't really apply to me. That, you know, I don't have a lot of people attacking my honor. I just kind of lay low, just kind of do my thing. But if, 
You know, this is not the sort of thing to lose sleep over, as my dad would say. But if you think about it for a moment, think about most of the problems in your life. How many of them are because of relationships? I mean, how much pain in your life has been caused by a problem in your parenting or your marriage or a work relationship? Right? Relationships are no small trouble. And what the trouble is in this text isn't really the main point because it is what David did with his trouble that is important. If I could quickly point out three things that David did to move from an anxious day to a peaceful sleep. The first is there in verse 1. David turned to God in his trouble. We should turn to God in our troubles. Right away in verse 1, David set himself up for success simply by calling out to God. The fact that this exists as a psalm shows us that he called out to God. He prays. Friends, our troubles will either drive us from God or they will drive us to God. Your troubles will either drive you from God or they will drive you to God. There are people, perhaps the people you love, who are not here today because they've had trouble and they think it's God's fault. And so they're not here. Our troubles drive us from God or they drive us to God. Our troubles have a way of, of shaking our lives and exposing who it is that we really trust in. You see, where we go in our time of need reveals where our hope is. Did you know that? Wherever or to whoever you go in your time of trouble reveals what or who you trust in. Right? Everybody runs to the place that they think is safe when they are afraid. And so if food makes you feel safe, that's where you go. If four hours of Netflix is what makes you feel safe and comfortable because you don't have to think about it, that's where you go. If gardening is your safe place, that's where you go. The question is, is when you are in trouble, where do you go? Do you run to God? So often, what we do in the face of life's difficulty reveals more about our faith than what we say or what we sing. David ran to God in prayer. And that is a habit, a skill, an impulse, a reaction of the Christian life that is foundational for those who would know true Christian peace. All, and I do mean all of the anxieties of your life are meant to be solved with prayer. Every single one of them. That's why Paul says that we shouldn't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, by prayer and supplication, to let our thanks, to let our requests be made known to God. And we do this by knowing that we have a God who hears. But there's a second step in this transition from anxiety to peace, and that's in verses 2 through 5. David submitted to God's ways. He submitted to God as the one ruling over his life. In the next several verses, David appears to be speaking, whether it's in his own thoughts somehow or 
like a journal or whether he's actually speaking to his enemies, the, the enemies there in verse 2. He seems to be talking to them, which can be kind of complicated for our interpretation, but we would understand that in one sense, we can't go into detail here, but that David, who is the covenant head of Israel, their king, is perhaps speaking into their life. He's doing some counseling, some giving some words of wisdom. And as he does this, he does what we should do. He counsels himself. He reminds himself. And this moves us to this critical dimension of honest self-reflection that is so critical for the Christian life. These are men who have rejected David. And in doing so, they have rejected God's anointed. They are rejecting God's plan for their life. And in doing so, they have rejected God himself. They've done what we do all the time in our sin. They've said, I am smarter than God. I got a better plan. I got a better way. I got better ideas. They question his judgment. They wonder if his rivals, that is idols, perhaps they could do a better job. Isn't that the question that we face in suffering? Isn't that our great temptation to question God's judgment? I mean, who among us does not feel smarter than God in the midst of our trouble, right? At least for a moment. Do you not question God's plan for your life as if you know better? You don't give God some recommendations on what he should do? And how you should fix things, tweak your health situation, your relationships, your finances. Well, David gets right to the point with this piercing question which appears at the end of verse 2. How long will you love delusions? How long will you be tricked by lies? How long will you love and live for worthless things? Are those not piercing questions for the Christian? Are those not important for us, especially when we're tempted to doubt God's wisdom in the midst of our trouble? In verse 4, David speaks of this wonderful relationship that Christians can enjoy with God. He recognizes that we who are called by God can be sure that the God who has called us to be our own, well, of course he's going to hear us when we call to him in our troubles. But I want you to notice something that's critically important about this text. Something that is, is vital for your life if you want to be free from anxiety. Something specifically that David does here as he submitted to God's ways. Listen to me carefully. David does not play God. David doesn't play God. Look at verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Now I think perhaps David is speaking to his enemies, counseling them about their anger, but perhaps he's also, actually I'm quite sure of it, speaking to himself. And we need to hear what he says. Look at the verse carefully. He says, be angry. Some of you are like, got it. Yes, right? 
I can do this. Friends, did you know you can be angry? In a fallen world, we have plenty of reasons to be angry. If you've ever stood over the grave of a loved one, you have reason to be angry. Things go wrong here. People slander you, even when you're trying to help them. Pregnancies fail. Dementia is terrible. The cost of medication goes up for no apparent reason. Sure, be angry. But listen to what else David says. But don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. It is so easy to sin when we're angry. This is why the New Testament basically says don't be angry. Because it's really hard for humans to be angry and not sin. You see, most of the time, here's what, goes, here's what goes wrong with our anger, with our sinful anger. Sinful anger is our attempt, even if it's with good intentions, to take matters into our own hands. Right? We see that something has gone wrong and we need to fix it. And no one knows better how to fix it than me. Right? We try to fix whatever is broken, to make wrong what, to make right what has gone wrong. But here's the problem. That's God's job, not your job. It is not your job to go around fixing what is wrong with the world. Some of you know immediately, you've got friends like that. They're annoying, aren't they, right? But do we not do the same thing? You see, we sin in our anger whenever we try to play God and fix the world. You see, anger is about making what is wrong right, but the problem is for us sinful humans with limited perspectives, most of the time, almost all the time, our perception of what is right and what is wrong is skewed. We might know that something went wrong, but we can't see all the values clearly enough to know why it's wrong. And so our anger is misplaced so often. See, our anger, even when we're over legitimate, angry over legitimately corrupt things, we usually get our values mixed up, out of sorts. Usually, I mean, in my life, what happens is I'm far too concerned with my glory how someone has slighted me, been unjust to me, not given me what I deserve, not given me the credit that I need, inconvenienced me, and I'm not concerned with God's glory. That's why our anger goes wrong. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 to never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So we need to be angry, but leave it to the wrath of God, because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It is best to just leave it to God. Our anger is, as we would say in the South, just meddling. Just meddling in God's affairs. Eugene Peterson said it like this. He said, what's wrong with the world is God's business. It's a business in which you will have a part come morning, when you wake up and get your assignment, we'll talk about that next week. Meanwhile, God is giving help at a far deeper level than any of your meddling could ever accomplish. 
This psalm says to ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Ponder. Each day, as the day comes to a close, we've got to learn to put down our phones. We've got to learn to turn off the TV, to put down our crosswords, and to take a few moments to sit with God, to reflect on our own thoughts, and let the Spirit search and convict. And then pour out our hearts to the Lord. Once again, maybe for the thousandth time, Lord, my life, my day, this problem is yours. Don't play God. You're not good at it. Instead, it would be far better for us to worship God. Verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This is the business of worship. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were central, primary to how sinners would approach God. It, it was central to the worship system where, by their very nature, they were designed to remind worshipers that there is a big, big problem in our relationship with God. That we are the sinners and God is the righteous one. So do you see how ridiculous it is for us to approach God telling him how to do his job? We have no right to do so. In fact, when we approach him, we approach him pleading for mercy. We have no right to tell him how to reorder the circumstances of our life as if we know. For we are sinners. Sinners approaching a holy God. And that, in and of itself, is a dangerous business. For sinners can only approach a holy God when blood has been spilt, when blood sacrifices have paved the way. And of course, we know that ultimately, the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament were preparing us for Christ and his sacrifice. How Jesus, who came as we have sung of his glory, he came as the perfect Lamb of God. That he willingly gave his life and spilled his blood to take away the sins of the world. And you cannot come near to God. No one can come near to God unless they come with a blood sacrifice. Unless you come with Christ. Friends, this means you must turn away from your sin. You must turn to Jesus, to run to him by faith, saying that you need him to forgive your sins and committing to following in his ways, letting him call the shots for your life. That's what faith is. And then you can hide from God in him. Then your sins can be forgiven. It can happen today. Some of you live lives of so much anxiety because you live without a father without a heavenly father. The solution to your anxiety is not necessarily pills and it's not necessarily some technique. It's not even some psalm technique. Your solution is Jesus Christ. Turn to him. In our prayers and in our problems, we must remember that we too are sinners and we need a savior. And what I've found is that this has a remarkable effect on my anxieties. 
when I remember that I'm a sinner, this totally changes my anger problem. When I remember that I'm a sinner, this totally changes what I'm anxious about. Because if God did not spare his own son for me, but freely gave him up for us all, is he not going to give me all that I need? And with anger, if God has set aside his just, righteous wrath towards me, an arrogant idolater, can I not set aside my anger for my fellow man when some small sin has come into play? Do you see? We must remember that we are sinners approaching God on his terms. And his only terms are Jesus Christ. Perhaps there's another role that sacrifice plays in this process. As we come to the end of our day, as we prepare for our unconsciousness, it's a good time to think back over our days, our successes, our failures, the work we've done. It's a good time to take stock of your life. You know that you will not have today again. It's fleeting. It's a good time to think about your best efforts and your mediocre efforts and your total failures. And it's a great time to say, okay, God, you see me. I put on a front for everyone else, but you see me. Here I am. Here's my day. It's my best effort in school. Take it. This is my mediocre effort in school. Take it. Sanctify it. This is what I've got. Please make something of this. You see, this is what the Lord requires for us when we, because we know that he calls our very lives to be living sacrifices. And so when you're laying in your bed, thinking over your day, when you can't do anything to improve upon it, when you've lived your day, when you've done your best, or not, now's a good time to surrender to the Lord, to recommit yourself to him, to trust him, and let him do what he needs, and then rest. One final movement in this psalm is in verses 6 through 8, and that is enjoy God. Happy Christians have very little anxiety. Apparently, things in these days were bad. Rather, Jerusalem may have been under siege, there may have been uh, problems with agriculture, whatever it is, but apparently the people around them, verse 6, were saying, when will God let something good happen? When is something good going to happen? When's God going to give us a break? I mean, sheesh. People were looking at their circumstances and saying, this great God doesn't seem to be that great. At least it's not working. What has God done for me lately? I wonder who here would say that or felt that. Have you not felt like that? God, I've been serving you. I've been tithing. I've been serving in the nursery. I even signed up for VBS. But what have you done for me lately? It's pretty tempting in our trials, isn't it? But David knew that the joy, that true happiness is not found when our lives are easy. That true happiness is not available only when things are comfortable, like when wine and grain abound. But true happiness comes from knowing and being in the presence of God, who is the source of all life. And so David has decided, I am going to bank my hope on God. 
My happiness is not in my work situation. It's not in my relationships. My hope is in God. He will do good. I'm going to learn to trust in the Lord who is good, to give good when and where he sees fit. Friends, David had learned an important lesson that each of us must desperately, desperately learn. And that is this. God is better than anything God can give you. God himself is better than any of the stuff that he made. God himself is the ultimate prize. This is why Christians can be happy has nothing to do with your circumstances if you have God. And David knows that. He has God, and so he rests. Verse 8, even in the midst of trouble, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We're going to move into a time of invitation, which is not just a time for people to come to the front, though you're welcome to. It's not just a time to join the church. It's not just a time to make a commitment for Christ. This is a time for each of us who has heard God's word to respond to him. So as I lead us in a time of prayer and as musicians come, will you consider how God is calling you to respond to him? Father, we thank you for your word and the promises that you've given us that that you will be with us and that you are our ultimate good. And Father, we confess before you that so often we live our lives full of anxiety and and anger, even at you, thinking that we know better. Help us, O God, to surrender our anxieties to you. Help us, O God, to put aside our anger and our judgment, knowing that you have done that for us in Christ. And Father, if there are any here today who do not know you, would you draw them to yourself? Let them see the beauty of Christ and his sacrifice, turning from their sins and trusting you by faith. Do this miracle, we pray. Amen. Stand and sing and consider how the Lord would have you respond.